Hello, you're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Has a patient or a patient's family ever turned to you for support in dealing with eczema? Well, today we will turn to some of the nation's leading pediatric dermatology specialists for help in scratching the surface of this physically demanding and psychologically stressful skin condition. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Andrew Krakowski, your host of Scratching the Surface of Eczema. With me today are Drs. Lawrence Eichenfield and Magdalene Dohill. Lawrence Eichenfield is a full professor of pediatrics and medicine dermatology at University of California, San Diego, and chief of pediatric and adolescent dermatology at Rady Children's Hospital, San Diego. He's widely regarded as one of the premier atopic dermatitis specialists in the country. Magdalene Dohill is an assistant clinical professor of pediatrics and medicine dermatology at the University of California, San Diego. She is also the director of the Eczema Center at Rady Children's Hospital, San Diego, the first of its kind in the country, which opened in April of 2007 to wide acclaim. Today, we're discussing eczema and more specifically, the treatment of atopic dermatitis as it relates to a pediatric population. Welcome, Dr. Eichenfield and Dr. Dohill. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So when faced with a condition like atopic dermatitis, which has so many systems involved, how do you go about even formulating a game plan for treating something like that? Well, we try to be very consistent in our approach to eczema, but that consistency really takes a whole set of approaches and puts them together. So you need to educate a family about atopic dermatitis. You need to come up with a plan on how you're going to get around the dry skin of atopic dermatitis. You need to hydrate the skin and moisturize the skin. You need to control inflammation in the skin. You need to treat secondary infection if it's there. You need to avoid any irritants or specific allergens that may be stimulating um, uh, the eczema. Uh, And then, again, we end up with education again. We need to tell the family or the individual with eczema, what to expect and how to both react to the disease to minimize its influence on uh, on themselves and the family. So this is truly a multi-pronged treatment approach. It's not just throwing medicines at the condition and it's not just education. It's a lot of things having to come together at one time. Absolutely. And it's not a steady condition. So as the condition changes, you need to react appropriately. So everything is influenced and that takes a lot of education for parents when to know how to react. Well, I I guess then in addition to education, which obviously is important and we'll certainly spend a lot of time talking about that, but if there was one thing that really was the mainstay of treatment for a chronic condition like atopic dermatitis, what would it be? I'd probably start with hydration. Realize when we talk about eczema, atopic dermatitis, there's this incredible variation in severity. There are some infants in the first year of life, they have a little bit of eczema, it's mostly dry skin, a little bit of inflammation. And if you moisturize the skin well, if you use moisturizers and hydrate the skin with appropriate bathing and good skin care, that may be all they need to have their disease in remission. On the other hand, there can be very severe patients who need, you know, lots of work to get their disease under control and keep it under control, much prescriptive medicine. But even in those patients, hydrating the skin and moisturizing the skin is a key to minimizing the impact of the disease on them over time. What sort of tools are out there to help hydrate the skin? Well, there is a wide range of tools of choices. And I think as a general rule, we would say start out with an oil or an ointment, the greasier, the better, and then see 
um, you you have to kind of respond to the individual patient's needs. In a very young infant, you can certainly use those kind of agents. As you're going up in the age group, these are very greasy agents are not well tolerated or well accepted by the child. And then sometimes creams or lotions are much more cosmetically acceptable and still will give you the degree of moisturization you need. Really, you want a good moisturizer on a daily basis, preferably twice daily basis, applied to the skin. So you really need to work with the child as to what they will actually allow you to put on and what, how you can gain their cooperation and involve them in this daily care routine. Part of moisturization can involve water. Actually, it's a somewhat controversial area in terms of how do you bathe this, the skin of someone with uh, atopic dermatitis. We know from experience and from some studies that if you bathe someone and don't put on moisturizer afterwards, the skin ends up drier, which I think explains why for many years, many specialists told eczema patients to avoid bathing. On the other hand, we know that if you bathe and immediately afterwards moisturize the skin, you end up with higher moisture content in the skin, uh, which explains why many specialists advise people to bathe frequently with atopic dermatitis and moisturize afterwards. But part of the moisturizing process can involve bathing in relationship to moisturizers and frequent application of moisturizers. So the key is to use the moisturizer that works best for your patient. If it comes down to it and the child or the child's family aren't happy with the goopy ointments, if they're at least using something, that's better than nothing. We make deals with families, and and there are also uh, other factors that come into it. Um, If I'm in a very dry climate, a desert-type climate, I might get away with using a a gooier ointment, so to speak, as compared to if I'm in a humid area in the south where it'll be harder to take the stickiness or greasiness. It might not be tolerated as well. There may be more secondary complications with follicular or uh, other secondary infections. So while an ointment or thicker cream generally is better, we definitely make our concessions down to the lotions. They have more water in them. They evaporate a little quicker, but they're so much easier to go on that, that you, we're happy to make that deal if the individual or the family can use that more regularly. It is perfectly acceptable for families to switch around and to combine. So if you have certain hot spots and you put the goopier, the greasy ointment to those areas and then use more of a cream or lotion for the rest of the body, that works very well for many families. It's always a trade-off between the favorites of the physician who may be prescribing it and the favorites that the family uh, uh, happens to like to use, and I think that's reasonable. So the moisturizers are great for hydration, but they're not going to do much for the inflammation that comes with atopic dermatitis. What do we have in our arsenal? We, we really have two main classes of anti-inflammatory topical agents that we use, and these are the topical corticosteroids and the topical calcineurin inhibitors. In terms of the topical corticosteroids, they're certainly, for families, they are often a cause of concern and fear because families associate with corticosteroids the steroids that you use to build up your muscles and uh, that come with a lot of uh, potential side effects. I think what needs to come up during the educational piece of any consultation is the fact that we have different classes of topical corticosteroids and this gives us a good tool to use the lowest strength appropriately for each patient. 
And we also have now a wide range of clinical studies that help us guide the choice of uh, topical steroids because these studies were done in children, in pediatric patients, and give us some guidelines as how how safe are they to use on the skin. I'm a little confused by all the numbers that I see on these prescriptions, and I think my patients are often as well. Tell me a little bit about about how that relates to treatment. Well, I think that's part of the reason why we need to spend some time studying this, because the numbers don't correlate at all to the strength or the potency of these uh, topical steroids. Basically, there is the system of the seven classes, which gives you rough indication of where you stand with your potency. But then the 0.1 or 0.05% that you see on the tube has to be correlated to which class of steroid you actually refer to. So a class 7, which is the weakest with a 0.1 indication, is much, much weaker than a class 1 that may have a 0.0025% written on the tube. And this is really where the physician, the pharmacist need to strictly tell the parents, follow the instructions so they don't get confused with these topical agents. Yeah, and some of the risks of the topical corticosteroids really relate to the strength of the medicine and then the duration of the use as well as the quantity of use. So, you know, you can use a very mild steroid for longer periods of time, but a very potent steroid after several weeks can create lots of havoc. And what are some of the side effects that you can see with topical corticosteroids? Well, there's no doubt that if you use, for example, a class 1 or 2 topical steroid for an extended time in a sensitive skin area, let's say you use it in the groin area or even just on the upper thighs, you may see some skin atrophy that may present with stretch marks with stria. Uh, You may see some telangiectasia. And studies have shown that if you use it uh, for an extended time, it may even show up in the blood in terms of suppression of your HPA axis. And that certainly, once you get above moderate strength corticosteroids, you have to be concerned about suppressing the normal production of cortisol over time. That's much, much less common with the lower strength topical steroids. Glaucoma and cataracts, is that a real concern for use around the eye? It is. We don't have good figures of of what that risk is when people use it on the face is seen on occasion and certainly something that needs to be considered. And we certainly do not like chronic use of other than, uh, well, chronic use of any steroid. And even with the low potency steroids around the eye, uh, we'll generally use them for very limited periods of time. And in fact, it was the side effects that are associated with topical corticosteroids that sort of drove the development of another class of medicines that we have available to us. Is that also correct? Yes. There's a set of medicines uh, which are, we call now the topical calcineurin inhibitors. And these are, are an alternative class of anti-inflammatory medicines that we can smear on the skin, uh, creams and ointments. And they're not corticosteroids, so they get around some of the corticosteroid side effects. For instance, they uh, have not been associated with thinning of the skin. They don't cause atrophy. And they can't impact on the normal production of cortisol in the body because it's uh, differently derived medication. Even with those benefits, the FDA currently has a black box warning on those products. Is that correct? These products were uh, always designed to be second line products, not to replace topical corticosteroids, which have a long history of a safe use when used appropriately. And uh, they were picked up very quickly in the marketplace because of these side effects that they avoid as compared to the corticosteroids. They're highly useful second line agents for atopic dermatitis. Uh, People niche them in different ways, but especially for facial 
central dermatitis or intertriginous areas, uh, or in patients who have a really prolonged need for topical anti-inflammatory medicine, they could be highly useful. And I've heard that we're even using medical devices to treat atopic dermatitis. What, what is that about? Well, there have been a few creams that have been approved by the FDA as medical devices. So they're prescription agents, but they went through a different regulatory process. But these are medications that were designed to help with the barrier dysfunction of the skin. So they have a variety of natural agents or lipids in them. Some of them probably have anti-inflammatory effect as well, but their primary purpose is to try to get around some of the barrier dysfunction of atopic dermatitis, and they appear to be useful in regimens to keep the skin in good control and minimize the need for some of the more potent anti-inflammatory medicines. Great. Well, I want to thank Dr. Lawrence Eichenfield and Dr. Magdalene Dohill from the University of California, San Diego and Rady Children's Hospital, San Diego. They've been our guests today as we've been discussing atopic dermatitis as it relates to the pediatric population. I'm Dr. Andrew Krakowski, your host of Scratching the Surface of Eczema. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on eczema, please visit the Eczema Center's website at www.eczemacenter.org. You can also check out the National Eczema Association at www.nationaleczema.org and the American Academy of Dermatology at www.aad.org. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 